today's reading is on page 617, and it's Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot feel his hands with it, nor one who gathers feel his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Uh, thanks very much, Sam, and thanks for your warm welcome again. It's great to be back with you. Uh, we're over the next three weeks looking at Psalms 129, 130, and 30, 131. Um, and it's great to be able to open God's Word with you. Can I ask you, please, to have a Bible open in front of you? It's a very short psalm, and I've picked short ones this time around, uh, but it's good to have that in front of you. We're going to refer to it a number of times, and also on the inside of a leaflet, you'll see an outline of what I'm going to talk about uh, and a couple of extra Bible verses that will save you flipping up. Uh, Let me start with audience participation. I know that will make some of your hearts sink, but that's too bad. Uh, And you can do better than the last lot. They were terrible. It was too cold at nine o'clock. I'm going to ask you, what's your favourite worship song and why? What's your favourite worship song and why? Just a couple of people, put your hand up. Tell us in a loud voice. If no one volunteers, I'll pick on Marcel, who obviously likes being at the... My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives and why? It declares that Jesus is alive. Terrific. Thank you, Marcel. Someone else? Yeah, Sam. No other name. No other name? Okay, can't be saved by anyone except for Jesus. Thank you. One more. How great thou art. Because? Okay, so it talks about life's ups and downs, but still affirms that God is great. Fantastic. Um, we are, we're starting a series on what are called the Songs of Ascents. Uh, these are psalms or um, songs that were to be sung as the Jews made their way up to the temple. So kind of the things you might have on your playlist as you came to church in the morning. Uh, and there are about 16 different psalms. We're just going to look at three of them. The challenge for us, of course, is that the psalms are very old Jewish songs and we don't have the music either. And for many of us, I suspect what makes a song memorable is that combination of both music and lyrics. Which means that for us, what we need to ask is, what is it saying, even if we can't hear it sung, what is it saying and how does it apply to us today? Uh, It is a challenge for Christians and uh, you've heard me over the years if you've been here as I've tried to make our way through Psalms. At the top of your handout, I think the key to the Psalms is focusing on what they tell us what God is like not how we ought to respond first and foremost. And I try to say that for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is, if you read the Old Testament just trying to repeat what they did in the Old Testament, well, quite frankly, you can't most of the time, and even if you do, well, they were far from perfect. So it avoids moralism by asking what God is like. But the most important reason is because in the end, the Old Testament points to Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of God. So over these three weeks, you'll see what I'm going to do is the same pattern each time, which will give you, hopefully, a confidence to read the Psalms for yourself. And you'll see the pattern there, what Psalm 129 says about God, how Psalm 129 points us to Jesus, and then thirdly, what Psalm 129 asks of us today. And those are the three points we'll cover. Uh, Let me reread the first four verses, because it's a song that's in two parts. Uh, Psalm 129, a song of ascents. They've greatly oppressed me from my youth, 
Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. A plowman have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Okay, a few things to say about Psalm 129. Uh, The first is, it's a particular kind of song. Uh, It's a song not of an individual. It's the song of a whole nation. It's a corporate song. Uh, And it's a song that you might describe as a battle hymn or a military anthem. It's describing a time when God has delivered the whole nation. Uh, We don't know what from. We're not told who the uh, specific enemies of God's people were. But we do know that they have been around for many, many years and they were were terrible indeed. So look there, verse 1. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Uh, It's repeated for emphasis, they've greatly oppressed me. Uh, Verse 3 is even more vivid. In fact, it's shocking. Verse 3, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. Uh, It's an image of a till being dragged behind a beast of burden, an iron till that's not so much pulled up the soil, but God's people. And that would leave us in despair were it not for the fact that in verses 2 and 4 there's a glimmer of hope. So verse 2, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they've not gained the victory over me. Verse 4, Plowmen have ploughed my back and made, my forest, made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous and he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. There is hope. Despite the opposition to God's people, God has intervened. And the image there where it talks about them being cut free from the cords of the wicked, uh, the one that springs to mind for me is of someone who's been bound up, perhaps someone who's been handcuffed, but they've been taken away and now they're free to leave. Throughout the ages, God's people have been and always will be oppressed. Here in Israel, in some way, it was clear that there was some kind of military power that was against them. Even for us today in 21st century Adelaide, there will always be those who oppress God's people. Uh, Perhaps it's the rising tide of secularism. It's a challenge for us to think about what it means for us to be God's people now and nevertheless to have those who stand against us. I heard recently someone describe that uh, the way to think about uh, our place in society uh, is with reference to three different cities, different cities that you meet in the Bible. So at one point, uh, this person said, uh, to be a Christian in Australia was like being in Jerusalem, in Zion, in the city of God. We lived in Christendom where basically Christian values held And we felt as if we fit in. Uh, By the 80s and 90s, actually, that had changed. And so rather than talking about us being in Jerusalem, this person said, we ought to think about us being in Athens. Uh, That's not modern-day Greece, but that's the Athens that we see in Acts chapter 17. You know, where Paul goes to the Areopagus and he talks with people, and people are happy just to reason and to listen and to hear different ideas. You know, there was genuine freedom of speech. We've moved further, though, haven't we? These days, Christians can't even, be, can't even speak up in public. And this person said, from Jerusalem to Athens, actually the right city to liken what we are in now is Babylon. There will be, or there has been and there always will be opposition to God's people. 
Uh, and yet, we have a confidence that we won't be defeated, we won't be overcome, because of what God is like. Look at verse 4 again. Plowmen have plowed my back, made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. He is the one who conquers our enemies. And he does it, actually, because it's a matter of his character. It's a matter of his righteousness. If he didn't defeat our enemies, the psalmist is saying, God would be unrighteous. He would be unjust. Well, from the first half of the psalm, we move to the second half, which is like a song in two parts, actually. It takes a very different turn. Pick it up with me in verses 5 through 8. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. If the first half of the psalm is about the assurance of God's deliverance of his people, the second half focuses on the defeat of our enemies. Uh, three times the psalmist speaks of God's retribution. You see that, may, 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 three different ways. And just to say something about each of them, may they be turned back in shame, verse 5. Um, I think the picture here is of a coup or a mutiny or an uprising that has not succeeded. Uh, perhaps it's a picture of, you know, those great, siege movies that you see where the enemies have come against a city, they've thrown all their forces at it but they've been repelled and the picture is of the defenders standing on the wall mocking them as they look down, you turned back in shame, you failed in what you've tried to do. Or verses 6 and 7, the picture is of God's enemies being like withered grass, withered grass. I don't know if you've ever flown into Adelaide at the end of a long summer you come in over the city and you see the parklands around the city that are just brown. You know they'll be green again at some point. That's what it's like here in Adelaide. But at least at that moment, it's a picture of the desolation or the barrenness. So, the psalmist says, may it be for those who have oppressed God's people. And the third and final image, verse 8, it speaks of the withholding of God's blessing which, for the songwriter, he can think of no greater deprivation than that God's favour not be on you. These are harsh things that are said here. This is not just calling that God's people will be delivered, it's calling for God's enemies to be utterly destroyed. It is right, of course, for us to pray for our enemies, we know that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Psalm 129 reminds us that it is right to want God's enemies to be held to account. And I suspect that if you and I, we Christians, if we were gathering this morning, not here in Adelaide, but in North Korea or in Iran, we might feel a little more of the power of what's being said in verses 5 through 8. 
It's not a cry for a holy war. It's not a cry for bloodlust. Verse 4 is very clear. He has cut me free. It's God who saves us. This is not a rallying cry for us to rise up and to take down our oppressors. But nevertheless, the flip side of God's deliverance of his people is always the holding to account of their enemies. Well, as I said at the start, this is a song of ascent. There's 16 of these psalms, uh, and it's meant to be sung on the way up to the temple, on the way to church, you might say. The implication from it, of course, is that God's victory is complete. The, The psalmist is looking back on the way in which God has delivered them. But nevertheless, they were to sing the song again. Sing it over and over again. Uh, The words, I guess you might say, are meant to be repeated and reappropriated for the present time. So the question is how? How do we sing this song even though it's not written directly for us? And to use the kind of the song image, what I want to suggest today is that uh, it's the same tune but just in a different key. And you see that because, of course, we see the Lord in a way in which God's Old Testament people never could. We see him in Jesus. And so point two there on your handout, how Psalm 129 points us to Jesus. Are there many ways in which you could see that connection? I just want to point out one. Uh, Here it is. Uh, The enemies of God's people, they are long-standing and at times they are terrible. But our battle, we are told... Uh, it's, with, it's with unseen forces. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say very clearly, our battle is a spiritual one. And perhaps we might see that most clearly, I think, in Colossians chapter 2. Have a look with me there. I've printed it there for you, just a couple of verses from Colossians chapter 2. Here the Apostle Paul is reflecting on what Christ accomplished at the cross. Chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ... He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. If I just pause there for a moment, uh, in a church like this one, we are very comfortable and familiar with Christ's work on the cross in taking away our sins. Uh, That's, in many ways, the bedrock of our belief. It's the centre of what we talk about and often what we sing about. Uh, Once a month when we have communion uh, or the meal of remembrance, uh, it's a way of very vividly reminding us of what Christ has done for us in his death on the cross. He takes our sins away. Uh, And of course, we ought to celebrate that, but that's not where Paul concludes in Colossians 2. Because look what he says in verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is a picture of Christ's victory over his enemies. At one level, those enemies, of course, were the humans who stood against him, Pilate and Herod, in fact, the whole people. But in fact, much more is at stake. What Paul is describing here, in the language that he uses, he's describing Christ's victory even over the spiritual forces, over the devil. And so many ways, 
Psalm 129 points us to Christ's work on the cross in conquering our enemies. I remember speaking about this a number of years ago to some of our students on campus, and one of them, who was a brilliant artist, went away and drew this picture that you'll see on the screen afterwards. Uh, It's something that stuck in my mind ever since. You see that image of how Christ, through his death, defeats even the devil, our greatest enemy of all. Colossians 2, I think, tells us that Psalm 129 is the same tune, just modulated to a higher and more soaring key. Of course, the power of the devil in the end is the thing that we fear and feel most. Uh, Look at what Hebrews 2 has to say about that. Again, on your handout, Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, Christ shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. According to Hebrews 2, the power which Satan wields is the power of death, or more accurately, the fear of death. The fear of death, which, at risk of personifying it, I think the fear of death is the thing that hangs over and overshadows every waking moment of our lives. The usual strategy that we employ, of course, is denial, just pretend that we won't die, or say it's so far away that we can ignore it. But still, it's the thing that hangs over us. And yet, according to Hebrews 2, in destroying the devil, in overcoming death itself, Jesus wipes out that fear once and for all. Uh, No wonder then, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he can mock death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He has conquered the grave. And therefore, we have no fear. Well, uh, that's something about what Psalm 129 says about God and how it points us towards Jesus and he shows us what God is fully like. Let me finish then with just um, one or two very brief comments about what Psalm 129 asks of us today. Two things. The first is, I think Psalm 129 puts very clearly in front of us a question. The question is, will you reach out and take hold of that cross? Because in so doing, that's how you overcome the fear of death. There is no other way, in fact... Uh, to pick up on something that was said earlier about a song that was a favourite of Sam's. Uh, There is no other way to overcome death apart from with the one, Jesus, who has already defeated it. It means, of course, that you have to be prepared, again, to use the military image, you have to be prepared to rally to his banner, to come under his standard, to stand with him, Because outside of him, there is no victory. To continue that military image, it's saying that with him there is a mantle of protection. 
there is a covering shield. But you have to renounce everything else. And you have to throw your lot in him. Take shelter under his wing, to use a different image from the Bible. Uh, Perhaps that's something you need to do for the first time. Or maybe the question for you is, have I been tempted to wander away? Here's the second thing to say about uh, Psalm 129. Uh, One of the things that I think it challenges us with is how we might look for opportunity to speak and to rejoice in this God of ours who conquers. This God who through in Jesus defeats not just the devil but even death itself. I want to ask that question because in many ways what I think sets us apart from those around us The difference in Christians' lives as we live in Babylon is not how we live, but it's how we face death. There's lots of different ways in which I could talk about that, but I just want to finish by reflecting on a story and a testimony that some of you will be familiar with. It's a picture on screen behind me. Uh, this is a picture of uh, Steph Lockery, uh, who was a CMS missionary in Central Asia until she died earlier this year from cancer. Um, that's Steph in the middle. On each side are my two daughters. The one on the left is a daughter. It's not just a statue. Um, this is just before Steph went back to Central Asia about four years ago uh, and her, was around and had dressed the girls up in something of what she herself would have to wear each day. She made the decision, as many of you will know, she's a psychologist by background, uh, but felt a conviction and a calling that there were many women in Central Asia who didn't know Jesus, and so perhaps she might be one who could tell them. Uh, As you would know, to go to the part of the world that she went to, a Muslim country, uh, was a significant risk. Uh, Many of us prayed for many years that she wouldn't be killed by terrorists uh, until she died at home in Adelaide, actually, of cancer. Uh, In her last year of life, one of the things that Steph would say continually whenever someone came to see her or heard her story, as they rightly were overcome at one level with the grief of seeing this young woman so full of life, so willing to do what most of us, quite frankly, were too afraid to do, Nevertheless, as her body wasted away, uh, what she would say time and time again was, don't weep for me, weep for the women of Central Asia who will die without Jesus. Uh, In her last week of life, uh, I watched as this played out, this confidence that she had about what was coming next for her, but at the same time, a great concern for those who didn't share it. We went and visited her about a week before she died and when we went home afterwards, our youngest daughter, the one in the little blue thing there, who's 10 years old, uh, was rightly asking questions, what happens to Steph? What's heaven like? And I watched as in the last week of Steph's life, Steph and Amy emailed backwards and forwards as Amy asked all sorts of questions about what's coming next and Steph with that last week of her life, catechised a younger sister to have the hope and confidence that she had. Uh, Many of you I know attended her memorial service 
hundreds of people who gathered to both grieve and give thanks for the life of this dear saint. At the funeral, at the memorial service, were a number of her work colleagues who weren't Christian from her previous job. Uh, Before she went uh, to Central Asia, she was a psychologist in the northern suburbs of of Adelaide, worked in the Northern District's Mental Health Service. And they had kept in touch over the years and a number of them came to the memorial service. Uh, One of Steph's other colleagues, who is a Christian, was telling me afterwards about the conversation they had over afternoon tea. Every single one of them said, we cannot believe what we have just seen today. How this woman, whose life was snatched away seemingly so young, nevertheless could face death with a confidence and a hope for herself and a concern for others who don't yet know Jesus. We can't believe it. So will you tell us more? And a week later, all of them gathered at this Christian brother's house to hear something of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. I think one thing that Psalm 129 does is that it reminds us that we are different from the world around us. And we're different because we know and we have a confidence about death. So, can I ask you, Perhaps in this week ahead, uh, you might, if you're given opportunity to reflect on such things, to do so with those around us, that they too might see something of the hope that's found in Christ alone. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and mercy, you have raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, not just to take our sins away, but to defeat even that greatest of enemy, death. So we pray, give us a confidence and assurance and give us opportunity to testify to the hope that we have to those around us. Amen.